This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a Lakewood baker who refused to make a custom cake for a gay couple's wedding. This is the widely followed case of Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The decision was expected to be close, but it didn't turn out that way. So what's the wider effect of this ruling. University of Denver law professor Nancy Leong joins us. She specializes in constitutional and civil rights law, particularly around public accommodations. And Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You call this a very narrow decision. Why? Yes, this is a very narrow decision. And for those of us who watched the court closely, this was somewhat anticlimactic. Uh, So what the court held here is that because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, uh, by making comments that were hostile to the religious beliefs of the baker in this cake, uh, they violated his free exercise rights. And so this decision essentially turned on the fact that these comments were made, meaning that in cases where there weren't these types of comments made by the commission, there will be very little direct impact on other bakers and you know other couples who are seeking to have uh, wedding cakes made for them. Okay, so the U.S. Supreme Court really here is calling out the Colorado Civil Rights Commission saying uh, in the proceedings... Uh, They ruled, by the way, against the baker in the proceedings. uh, There was a hostility towards religion. What were some of the comments they single out in this decision? Sure. So there are two in particular, and I am reading from the decision now. So um, one comment uh, is that a commissioner in a public proceeding said that uh, Mr. Phillips, the baker, can, quote, believe what he wants to believe, but he can't act on his religious beliefs if he decides to do business in the state. And a few minutes later, the commissioner essentially said that same position, uh, quote, if a businessman wants to do business in the state and he has an issue with the law impacting his personal belief system, he needs to look at being able to compromise. Now, the Supreme Court said that this statement was somewhat ambiguous. It might be interpreted as just Uh, you know, a statement that you can't discriminate against certain groups of people, kind of a, uh, you know, more of an obvious statement that everybody has to follow certain anti-discrimination laws. Um, Or it could have been a statement that was uh, hostile to the baker's religion. And so that brings us to the second comment, also made in a public proceeding by a different commissioner. And what that commissioner said is this, Quote, I would like to reiterate what we said in the hearing during the last meeting. Freedom of religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, uh, because we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use their religion to hurt others. Hmm. And all of that is a quote from uh, this public hearing, and that statement was made by a commissioner on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. This perceived bias against religion on the commission's part was front and center in oral arguments. Um, Here, for instance, is Justice Kennedy, who wrote this decision from back in December. Counselor, tolerance um, is essential in a free society. And tolerance is most meaningful when it's mutual. 
it seems to me that the state in its position here has been neither tolerant nor respectful of Mr. Phillips' religious beliefs. So I, I want to get to the, the wider implications here or the lack thereof. You said in some ways this is somewhat anticlimactic. I'll note that the decision was not close, seven to two, right? Yeah, it was it was seven to two with only Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissenting. And, and why do you call it anticlimactic? Help speak to the big tension that was around this case, which is the freedom of religious expression versus uh, that public accommodation, that access to a place that sells something. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, I think that um, there is a decision that could have been written about this case that would have been much more expansive and would have addressed a much wider range of situations. So here what we have is, on the one hand, a baker who is a devout Christian. He refuses to design custom cakes that conflict with his religious beliefs. Um, He closes his business on Sundays. He won't design cakes that contain alcohol, that have Halloween themes, right? So on the one one hand, we have a baker who has these very strongly held uh, religious beliefs. On the other hand, we have a Colorado statute which prohibits places of public accommodation, meaning businesses that uh, sell goods or offer services to the public, there's a statute that prohibits um, these places of public accommodation from discriminating on the basis of a number of characteristics, uh, you know, race, uh, you know, uh, national origin, right, and, this includes... and then sexual orientation. Exactly. Yeah. And this and is the, the Colorado so... Anti-Discrimination Act. But, but with this case, this ruling does not get to the fundamental tension between what you've said there. No, this ruling doesn't get to that fundamental tension at all, really. Instead, this is a very narrow ruling, and I suppose this is why I say it's anticlimactic. It entirely hinges on these statements that were made by members of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in determining that the baker's uh, decision to refuse service to this same-sex couple violated the Colorado anti-discrimination statute. So had those statements not been made, um, this case might have come out entirely differently. It might have been decided in an entirely different way. The justices point out some inconsistency here as well, noting that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had ruled in the case of a baker who was asked to write anti-gay messages on a cake and actually sided with the baker who refused. Yeah, that's right. So there was a previous case in which, well, there have been a few previous cases, but so uh, one that I'll describe as an example is a a case in which a baker was asked to uh, make a cake shaped like a Bible and to write some messages to the effect that homosexuality is a sin. And the baker refused to do that. And in that case, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission sided with the baker and said that the baker in that case uh, didn't use to, didn't didn't have to use their uh, their talents or their you know their cake making abilities, if you will, yeah. to communicate that message. So, what does this mean for Colorado's law, anti discrimination law? I think that's a fundamental question. I'll say that the Human Rights Campaign, which is one of the largest LGBTQ groups in the country, says this really does nothing to change any of the laws in states that protect gays and lesbians. Is that your reading? 
Yeah, that is, I, I share that reading. Okay. And again, I think because this hinges really just on these two statements that were made um, by two members of the Colorado Rights Commission. I mean, it certainly says something about whether that type of statement can be made or how it can be used later on. Um, but it doesn't say anything about Colorado's um, anti-discrimination law. It doesn't say anything about the validity of that law. It doesn't undermine that law. Um, so it leaves very little uh, change. Nancy, I'll say that the Alliance Defending Freedom, which represented the baker Jack Phillips, has said Jack serves all customers. He simply declines to express messages or celebrate events that violate his deeply held religious beliefs. Uh, and so I wonder, even though you say this case uh, this this ruling was very narrow. Uh, if folks like Jack might feel emboldened today, what do you think? I think, well, I think it's possible that uh, folks like Jack might feel emboldened today. But I do think it's important to bring out the idea that this case did not get to what many people think is the hard issue. Um, so it's important to look at the facts of this case and to notice that Mr. Phillips uh, declined to serve this uh, same-sex couple before he even knew what their cake was going to look like. So maybe they just wanted a completely plain white wedding cake. I think it's very difficult to argue that there is uh, any sort of expressive element to a baker selling um, a same-sex couple a cake that you know, doesn't really have an expressive element to it. And so, you know, the Supreme Court decision, what it really held is that the baker in this case wins because the process was tainted, because mm. there were these uh, comments that were hostile to religion. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he has a license to just, um, you know, refuse to serve whoever he uh, does not want to serve in the future, right? Like there are other there are other issues at play here. There are also other cases in the legal pipeline, so to speak, that have to do with folks in the wedding industry. And so I, I imagine that this is not going to be the last time the U.S. Supreme Court considers cases of this ilk. Do you think that's true? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, a lot of people are disappointed with this decision because, uh, after all, the Supreme Court is our ultimate legal authority. They had the opportunity to lend some clarity to this area by addressing not only this narrow religious question, but also uh, the question of uh, what what are the uh, free speech rights of people who provide services in the wedding industry and what happens when those free speech rights come up against uh, public accommodation rights, the right of people to participate in the marketplace. And the Supreme Court didn't really address any of those issues at all. So, yes, I think you're absolutely right. And we will be seeing other cases, um, you know, uh, involving uh, similar issues in the future. Very briefly, we have just about a minute. You say this ruling might have an effect on a totally different case, President Trump's so-called Muslim ban. Uh, how so? Yes. So I think that it might very well be the most important implication of this case. And so the government has argued that the so-called Muslim ban would be lawful um, if we don't take into account consideration of the president's statements or his intent, and that an official action can't be unconstitutional solely on the basis of, you know, official intent. But then in Masterpiece, Justice Kennedy says, uh, you know, if the government respects the Constitution's guarantee of free exercise of 
religion, then the government can't impose regulations that are hostile to religious belief. Oh, in other words, and the, the, the free the, exercise. Yeah, the comments of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission around its decision were impactful in in the court's decision, and thus how rulings, laws are talked about should actually be a part of the record. Yes, exactly. And so that potentially President Trump's uh, statements and the statements of other people in his administration could similarly be taken into account in evaluating the constitutionality of uh, the Muslim ban or the travel ban. Fascinating. That's Nancy Leong. She's a constitutional law professor at the University of Denver. And we've been talking about the decision this morning from the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of a religious baker in Lakewood who refused to make a custom cake for a gay couple. In a narrowly written decision, the court ruled in the baker's favor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The image of a drowned Syrian toddler washed ashore in Turkey is seared into the mind of Anna Seeger. Seeger lives in Boulder and says the picture hit home. It was the same age as my son, and when I looked at the photo, I saw my son there in his place, washed up, dead. The photo went viral in 2015, and shortly after, Seeger traveled to Greece to help arriving refugees. The work opened her eyes to another dimension of the crisis, that some of the refugees had come from Iraq and Afghanistan and had helped the U.S. during the wars there. I became aware of all these guys that had worked for the U.S. military, but they just were forced to leave their country. They couldn't live there anymore because of the danger they were facing as a result of the work they had done for the U.S. government. They had served as interpreters, and in both Afghanistan and Iraq, that meant they had targets on their backs. The U.S. created special visas to get them out quickly. For Iraqis, that program ended in 2014, but it's estimated that 10,000 Afghans are still waiting. Anna Seeger helped connect some of them with two filmmakers, and they've made a documentary about this unfulfilled American promise. These interpreters are just the nearest example of the full load we've taken on. And yet it's done without thought. And then it's shrugged off without thought. They need us to be better than we are. And some of them seem to believe in our mission more than we did. The documentary is called The Interpreters. It just premiered at Telluride's Big Film Festival. And one of the filmmakers, Andres Caballero, joins us from New York City. And Andres, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Your film follows two interpreters closely who have very different experiences. And I want to start with Muchtaba from Afghanistan. Uh, Tell me about his role helping the U.S. and what he risked doing that work. Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, Mushtaba is an Afghan interpreter who worked with U.S. forces, specifically with the Drug Enforcement Agency. Um, And he was there for about a year or so. And um, obviously, because of that work, uh, he was being targeted by Taliban, uh, especially after U.S. troops began to pull out of Afghanistan. Um, And, you know, he had heard about this special immigrant visa program. um, And, you know, obviously he was torn uh, about his chances of actually being eligible and whether or not uh, it was going to work to help him get to safety. 
Indeed, the special visa program churns slowly for him. And so he, realizing there is a target on his back, resorts to more drastic action. What does he do when he's not able to get what's supposed to be uh, a fast process for a visa? Yeah, um, this process legally should take no more than nine months to complete. Uh, But, you know, these guys are subjected to very heavy, extreme vetting procedures. Um, It's a process that is very complex and has to go through many agencies, uh, State Department and others. And, you know, with Mushtaba um, not hearing back for several months from the U.S. government in terms of his eligibility to continue with the process, he decided to um, take matters into his own hands and leave as refugees from Afghanistan uh, with his wife and three children uh, and, and make that dangerous journey that we're familiar with um, and, and, you know, make it to Istanbul and then eventually cross the Aegean Sea uh, to Greece. And that winds up being a deadly journey for his family. What happens? Yeah, that, that was a journey that, um, you know, obviously he knew the risks, but it turned into a, a tragedy. Um, and, you know, he represents... Uh, that journey. There's not one interpreter journey. And, you know, we follow three characters. He represents the journey where he becomes, you know, there's a tragic result. Obviously, it was his decision, but there was a reason he did that. And it was the desperation of no longer being able to wait. Um, and so, you know, now he's in Istanbul, Turkey still, after two years, um, still waiting, uh, you know, in, waiting in the middle of this process for the special immigrant visa. Um, with one of his children uh, who also survived the crossing. Um, Unfortunately, his family members didn't. Right. He loses, I I believe, his daughter and his wife when the boat sinks. Yeah, his his wife and two children, actually. Um, uh, When the boat sinks, uh, their bodies were never recovered uh, as of today. So he's sort of still kind of, you know, coming to terms with that and um, also living, living in Istanbul, Um, where his stay isn't really guaranteed uh, for much longer. When he was in the water, when he realized he'd lost his wife and two children, he thinks for a moment about giving up. So I was trying to leave myself to drown. The only thing that made me to be alive or to rescue myself is Bahra. Because I I was sure that he's alive, I can rescue him. So he decides to live because he knows that his son has survived, one of his sons has survived. Uh, And and so he is still in limbo. Um, Even though he served the U.S. military, uh, he has not arrived. Yes, and that's one of the the main issues of this whole thing. Um, You know, why is it that so many interpreters like him are still waiting Um, You know, many for several years, I've talked to many people who have been waiting for five plus years uh, to get this visa. And uh, in the meantime, unfortunately for Mushtaba, who's stuck in a a different country without being able to make it to the European Union, um, you know, he had some issues with the Turkish government authorities who detained him and his son um, and tried to deport him back to Afghanistan, which is... Uh, insane idea, you know, first because he fled for his safety and now the idea of going back, what that would mean um, for him and his son. 
um, after this tragedy of losing the rest of the family. Um, so it's it's something that you know, as a filmmaker, um, I would say it was one of the toughest toughest interviews to, and, and also just um, you know, filming with him. The idea of putting putting him through through this process of of you know, he was at a very delicate mental state when when my co director and I filmed with him. Mm. Um, hard to understand really unless you're in his shoes. But unfortunately, it's these stories that are important to to get out there to to audiences all, all over the U.S. so that people understand the, how serious this issue is and. Even though the war uh, apparently ended for many, um, uh, and you know, at, at least here in the United States, uh, the talk of, of the wars in Afghanistan and, and in Iraq um, is not as present anymore. But um, there's been a huge impact not only on, on, on our soldiers who fought there, but also on the life lives of Iraqis, civilians, Afghan civilians, and and these interpreters specifically, which this film focuses on. And Andres, the second interpreter you follow from Iraq is nicknamed Philip Morris. Just tell us briefly about him. Sure. Um, so he, Philip Morris is is a pseudonym for for Khalid, uh, who's an Iraqi interpreter uh, who worked with U.S. forces in Basra, uh, where he befriended uh, Sergeant Paul Braun from the U.S. Army. And they worked together uh, for, for several months uh, or a year plus. And, um, you know, they, they became friends. And when it came down to uh, Paul's uh, platoon uh, withdrawing from, from Basra, uh, the big question was, what's going to happen to Philip? And um, obviously he had already had threats and the job that he was doing, he had already been exposed to people who knew he, he was working with coalition forces. Um, and then, you know, it was it was about their friendship. And, and when Paul Braun gets back to the U.S., uh, he does everything he can to help uh, Philip and his family get to safety through this special immigrant visa program. And the relationship they develop, and in fact, the relationship that Khaled, a.k.a. Philip Morris, develops with this soldier's wider family is so touching. I just love this moment in the film. I think in some ways... We're his stand-in family here in America. He's really contributed warmth to our family, but also opening up our viewpoint beyond our Christian background, which has been rather narrow here in this community. So Philip Morris, Khalid, made it out. But have, have many of these interpreters been killed because they just haven't been able to leave their countries? Yeah, um, I've heard of many, many cases where interpreters have been targeted and killed, um, also their families, um, just for being related to, to the interpreters. Uh, it's hard to say because, you know, it's hard to say how many of them have been killed while waiting for their visas. The State Department does not keep track um, of those cases, of how many have been killed. And it's it's extremely hard also for other organizations that are involved in helping interpreters come to safety. Um, but right now we're working on an impact campaign with organizations like No One Left Behind. Um, also had been collaborating with uh, IRAP, the International Refugee Assistance Project, to try and gauge, um, you know, how many people have been killed in the process. But uh, we know it's happening. It's just uh, we don't have an exact number. So again, this comes back to this special immigrant visa. That program expired for those who serve the U.S. military in Iraq. Uh, but there are thousands who await 
this visa and coming to the United States who served in Afghanistan. Why has it been so slow? As we said before the break, this was supposed to be a fast track, but it's not been. I think since the programs were created for Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm talking 2008, 2009, um, you know, there were most of the visas that were allotted to, to, to this program were not being handed out. And no one knew why, um, because they were there available. And this was under the Obama, you know, Obama administration as well. Um, so the program was very, very slow. And, you know, it's great that it was created, that the U.S. came up with this program for these people. But, you know, the question is, you know, what's the whole what's the point if it's not working like it's designed to? And in the meantime, people are dying. Um, and now, you know, I think it's one of the main problems that I've come across is just really the, the, the whole process. It's extreme vetting. And while we understand that, you know, there are national security concerns and all that, um, this it doesn't make any sense um, to make these people wait five years in hiding, changing houses for their own safety, you know, every week or so, um, or leaving as refugees because they can't wait any longer. Um, and now in the past year, um, under the, the Trump administration, uh, the numbers also show that uh, very few SIVs have been granted. Um, the number of SIVs granted to interpreters has decreased dramatically in the past year. And, you know, obviously it's hard to say, but the, you know, people are hinting at the, the travel ban that only makes it even tougher. That extreme vetting that these interpreters were already subjected to now is even more extreme. Um, and, you know, we filmed with at least 12 to 15 or talked to 15 interpreters or so um, in Afghanistan as well. And we still keep in touch with them. Um, and, and they're just in the middle of it, just wondering, you know, when am I going to get my interview? Um, it's been several years. And in the meantime, this is the issue that we're trying to expose with the film. The film is The Interpreters, and we spoke with its co-director, Andres Caballero. It just made its world premiere at Telluride Mountain Film, and a refugee advocate in Boulder also helped contribute to the project. You can see a trailer at CPR.org. And that's our show on listener-supported CPR News. Throughout the day, reaction and analysis of today's decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of a religious baker in Lakewood who refused to make a custom cake for a gay couple, in a narrowly written decision, the court ruled in the baker's favor. Stick with us here and at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.